Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Monday, November 6th, 2023. Colonel Douglas McGregor here in a moment on what happens when the commanding general in Ukraine says we reached the stalemate and can Israel possibly achieve its goals by decimating Gaza. But first this. Judge Napolitano here. The world is falling apart and the government wants to spend money to try and save it. The Israelis are defending themselves from the greatest onslaught in their history. Ukraine is collapsing. We are trying to fund both on borrowed money and borrowed time. The Federal Reserve keeps raising interest rates so everything you own is worth less and everything you earn can buy less. What can you do about it? You can buy gold and silver, the most stable commodity on the planet in the past 3,000 years. The government can't print more of it and can't interfere with it. Where should you buy your gold and silver? Do what I did and go to Lear Capital. Call 800-511-4620 or go to learjudgesnap.com. You'll have a very interesting conversation with a very knowledgeable person. No heavy pressure. And if you want to diversify what's in your IRA from stocks and mutual funds, consider physical gold and silver. Ask about a gold-backed IRA. You can take this information and discuss it with your spouse. And when you call, find out if you can qualify for up to $15,000 in bonus gold or silver. Call today, 800-511-4620, LearJudgeNap.com. When you talk to them, tell them the judge sent you. Colonel McGregor, welcome here, my dear friend. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Over the weekend, General Zaluzhny, the commanding military officer in Ukraine, for whom I think you and others have indicated there is general respect in the military community, uh, told The Economist magazine that the military uh, conflagration in, in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine is at a stalemate, and President Zelensky erupted and sent one of his aides to condemn the general's statement. What do you think is going on? I think uh, General Solushny is trying to put a happy face on a dead rat. There is no stalemate. Ukraine is defeated. Ukrainian army is in ruins. The Russians are advancing. And wherever they are advancing, they are meeting very little resistance. And uh, the one town that the Ukrainians tried to make a stand, Advedika, has uh, ultimately been destroyed and turned into another Bakhmut exercise for uh, the Ukrainians. I think what he's trying to do is is get someone in his own government, as well as in Washington, to deal with the truth. 
Now, privately, behind closed doors in Washington, Judge, they do know the truth. Uh, they know it's over. And the longer they stall and refuse to acknowledge that publicly, the further and further the Russians will advance. And that's where we are. Our friends at NBC News are reporting uh, yesterday that officials from the State Department and from the EU, I don't know who, are talking to each other about the need for negotiations. Are they talking, as far as we know, to President Zelensky? Is this in the offing? If true, this would reinforce what you said, that Washington finally has learned the truth. They've turned off uh, Mrs. Um, uh, Newland. <laughs> well, I'm not sure she's being turned off yet. She's just sort of being put on ice. It would be nice to see her gone completely. But in truth, uh, what they're all saying behind closed doors, uh, Judge, is how do we get out of this without looking ridiculous? Right. You know, what can we say or do that will conceal uh, the enormity of the disaster? Uh, in the past, you know, we have simply packed our things and left. We did that in Vietnam. Uh, I think we did that in Afghanistan. We've done that, I think, for the most part in Iraq, though we've left some people there to maintain the fiction that we have some measure of influence in that country, which I don't think we do. But the bottom line is uh, it's over. And uh, the sooner they get, they get Zelensky out of the way, they can come to some sort of arrangement with the Russians. But let's be frank, the arrangement that they reach is not going to be one that they like. And it may take time before uh, an agreement is reached, because when they say no to the first offer, the Russian forces will resume their advance. And I think we'll be in this position until someone shows up and says, we'll meet your terms and signs on the dotted line. Nobody wants to do that. And whatever the terms are, we know they're not going to be what they could have been and would have been two years ago when President uh, Putin uh, offered uh, terms that were acceptable until the Americans came in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is something important, and I'm glad you brought that up. The only people lying throughout this entire episode have been in the West, particularly the Western elites, globalist elites that remain wedded to Biden and his government and our elites. Uh, Putin has always been truthful. When he halted the advance of his forces in response to a stated willingness on the Ukrainian side to accept neutrality, he was being very serious. Fine. You accept neutrality. We can make some adjustments. And we're out of here. That was all botched badly. And Zelensky was promised everything. And Zelensky believed it. He's going to end up like everybody else that's ever cooperated with us over time, out of a job and maybe lose his life in the process. Last uh, subject matter on uh, Russia. Um, RT, Russia Today, uh, reports that former Russian president and now deputy National Security Advisor, I think is his title, or Deputy Chair of the National Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, is saying that the Russians need to worry about the Poles, the, the Polish government. If true, I was surprised to hear him say that. The new Polish government should be more friendly to them than the one that the that is in office now. Do you know anything about this? Well, I know my friends in Poland tell me that this new government will probably not last more than six to 12 months, if that. I think we're going to see governments turn over all across Europe until finally governments are in place that are both rational and capable of dealing with the enormous problems that face all these countries. 
So I think his uh, statement about the polls is not with not entirely groundless, but I think he's exaggerating. But then again, Medvedev is somebody that is almost, uh, you know, periodically released, you know, from the kennel to go out and bark and frighten people, after which he shuts up and is put back in the kennel. Right. right. When he was president, uh, he got a bad reputation because he was seen as too friendly to us, as too willing to cooperate with us. And ever since, he's been trying to make up for that disaster. I mean, this is the guy who once said the Russian troops, if we unleash them, will go to Poland's western border, which would mean run over all of Poland. Yeah. Well, that, right. that was always nonsense. But right. again, you know, Putin's in charge. Right. Medvedev. Right. And Medvedev makes Putin sound not only rational, but tame by comparison. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Is uh, Israel running into significant resistance in its efforts to subdue Hamas in Gaza? Uh, Antiwar.com reported this morning that 500, excuse me, 350 Israeli troops were killed over the weekend. The IDF doesn't comment on that. If, if Antiwar.com numbers are accurate, is that a significant number to be concerned about? Well, first of all, I don't know what the real numbers are for either side, and expecting the truth at this stage is unrealistic. We're going to be told whatever the various sides want us to believe. Is that a realistic appraisal? I'd say it probably is. And keep in mind that uh, the Israelis are just con just as concerned about casualties in their ranks as the Russians are about casualties in their own. The Russians have been moving very deliberately, very slowly and advancing, and that's true for the Israelis as well. But the Israelis have gained ground. Now, how do you gain ground in this environment? Well, it's scorched earth. You annihilate everything in front of you and uh, essentially flatten large areas. That's happening. And when you do this, then you try to move in and establish a permanent presence, which I think is what the Israelis are trying to do. But it's a long time coming. You know, remember, this is about the size of Manhattan, uh, maybe a little smaller. And the rubble buildings make it that much tougher. And of course, you have the tunnel networks. Hopefully, you know, I think the, the Israelis take the position that hopefully they are depriving the tunnels of oxygen, killing people inside them by collapsing them. But again, you know, it's a tough position because they're also trying to rescue what they say are now 248 hostages. With each passing day, it seems less and less likely that they will survive. Seems a little out of um, character to me that their their thrust seems to be on massive destruction of infrastructure as opposed to surgical efforts to rescue the hostages, for which the IDF has had some fantastic, remember Entebbe, some fantastic historical success. Does Benjamin Netanyahu really want to rescue the hostages? Or does he want to fight a war that's going to take five years so he can stay in office for five more years? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, I think he would like to rescue the hostages. The problem is that in, in contrast to something like Entebbe, where you had a, an airplane that was holding hostages, it could be attacked by special operators that practiced for months to do it. Uh, this is not that kind of environment. This is, a, this is the worst of all imaginable environments. And inevitably, unless you want to lose large numbers of your own soldiers by sending them room to room, building to building, crawling through the tunnels, you're probably going to do exactly what uh, Mr. Netanyahu wants to do. And remember, his interest is in annihilating Hamas, and anyone who is near it is viewed as a co-combatant or co-belligerent. In other words, you said surgical. There's nothing surgical in a real war. This is for the Israelis, for the first time, I would argue, since 1973, a real war. There's no nonsense here. If you go into the building, I'm not going to send 10 soldiers in to find you. I'm going to level the building and move to the next structure. We did that, by the way, in Fallujah uh, to a large extent, and even more so in Mosul. You know, soldiers are not surgeons. And those Israeli soldiers, whether they're in tanks or armored fighting vehicles or dismounted, are not saying, oh, look over to the left. Well, that's obviously not a combatant. That person can't possibly be part of Hamas. But more to the right, those have got to be Hamas fighters. You don't say that. They want to survive. You survive by killing the enemy before he kills you. So I would never criticize, having been in that position myself on the battlefield, anybody who opens up on a target that they see in front of them that they think is an enemy, whether or not it is. Those are the facts of war. That's always been true. The, the problem, though, is that he wants to do more than simply destroy Gaza. I think he wants to drive the population out. If it doesn't die there, then drive it out and eliminate the Gaza Strip. When um, he makes the argument, Prime Minister Netanyahu, that civilian casualties are the cost of war, and when those casualties are now over 10,000, um, we all see the pictures. Are those, is his argument accepted by uh, Western governments and even Arab governments? Well, accepted is probably the wrong word. It's certainly inside Israel and people that know what the long-term strategic goal is, they'll view this as absolutely acceptable. From his standpoint, he's trying to administer an object lesson that he hopes is going to impress the entire region that if you do what, what Hamas does or did, then this is the fate that awaits you. And we will no longer tolerate populations that harbor these people. If you have, a, have an organization within your population that is threatening us and kills us, you and your population will pay the ultimate price. Now we can discuss whether or not this is a truly intelligent solution, given the numbers of enemies that are multiplying as we 
talk today and those that can actually destroy Israel. That's another subject, but that's his view. And there's a lot of evidence historically that sometimes it works and it has worked on occasion. And we can go through that. We've even done that here in the United States to some of our enemies historically. Is but it, it, is it the sort of thing that's going to work for him? I, I don't know. Is it moral and lawful for him to kill so many civilians? They dropped six 2,000-pound bombs on a refugee camp to kill one Hamas official whom they killed, along with several hundred others. I can't it, imagine any... Well, in his court, not that this is ever going to play out in a courtroom. Oh. I'm putting my, my old hat on it, but I just can't imagine anyone saying with a straight face that this is moral unlawful. You know, you, you go back to the Nuremberg trials, right. and if anybody had, had looked at that objectively, they could have lined up far larger numbers of Soviet commanders guilty of far more heinous destruction. And ah, but the Soviets won. <laughs> yeah. And, and we also did many things that on more than one occasion probably fell into the same category. Certainly the bombings that went on uh, by our air forces when there was nothing left to bomb. We were still bombing heavily in March and April when the war was effectively over. We were killing all sorts of people. That the car the so-called carpet bombings. Yeah. So, look, again, he looks at this and other Israelis say, all right, we killed 10,000. And that's or killed whatever it was two thousand. That's sad and unfortunate, but we got the individual that we were after, and the fact that he is not going to survive sends a signal to everyone, and more important, it sends the same signal I mentioned earlier. Well, if you want to live and get along with us, don't allow someone like this to live in your area to to operate or swim in your pond. If you do, you're going to die with him. Look, we did things in Afghanistan that were similar. And we did things, as I said earlier, in, in Iraq that cost civilian lives. And we took the position they shouldn't have been there. Now, I'm not saying it's lawful. I'm not saying it's morally justified. I'm trying to get people to understand the logic. That's something that, that you either accept or you reject. If you don't like it, that's fine. The issue is strategic, Judge. What is happening strategically in the region as a result ah, of that? All right. That's my next question. Strategically, it it, it's, to me, you're the expert, a disaster for the Israelis in terms of the animosity and preparation for doing something from Jordan to Iran to Lebanon to Turkey in response. Yes, it is a disaster. Um, what is the value, if any, of Secretary Blinken's diplomacy in the past three days? Well, let's look at uh, Blinken's experience with the Turks, which I regard as perhaps the most important. Secretary Blinken shows up in, in the dark. He's greeted by the U.S. ambassador and a few people. No one uh, of consequence from the Turkish government is there to greet him. The next day, he meets with the Turkish foreign minister. There's a brief grip and grin at the outset. They disappear in for a discussion. Uh, there is no joint news conference afterwards. He comes out and gives his side of whatever was discussed. We hear nothing from the Turks. He is never invited to speak with uh, Mr. Erdogan, the president, nor is there any joint protocol discussing what went down. And then he leaves. Now, let's, co let's compare that with the visit of the Iranian 
foreign minister to Ankara. The Iranian foreign minister shows up and is greeted by the Turkish foreign minister and high dignitaries. He then is taken to the uh, Ministry, of, ministry of State, where he uh, meets with uh, the Turkish foreign minister at some length. Then he is taken in to meet with the president, Mr. Erdogan. After it is over, there are pictures and discussions, there are published accounts, and uh, he gets up and he leaves and goes back to Iran. Now, what are we seeing? We're seeing the rejection of the United States. We are seeing a snub, a snub of our national power, national influence. And we are witnessing between two rival powers a, an obvious recognition that they share the same interest. That interest is in stopping the horror in Gaza and evicting us or expelling us and our influence from the region. That's how I read it. Do you um, think we are any closer to American troops on the ground in Gaza? No, we're not going to see conventional uh, armed forces on the ground there because we frankly have almost nothing to send. Uh, you know, what we've got are special ops, uh, special forces, and somebody is saying advisory roles. That may be true, but uh, I can't imagine the Israelis needing a great deal of advice from us. They've got plenty of experience. They know the history as well or better than we do. Uh, so, no, I don't see that. I do see our air power and missile power as lurking in the background. And interestingly, the uh, Nasrallah, the spokesman and leader of Hamas, or not Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, essentially said, we are already, in fact, at war with Israel, but we are not escalating at least not until we see what happens next. And I think that's very important because that means that the Iranians, the Turks, and everyone else are watching carefully to see what we do and what Mr. Netanyahu does. If there is suddenly uh, a ceasefire of some kind, call it what you will, humanitarian pause or anything else, then I think we will see numbers of people stand down and await an outcome. But if nothing occurs, and the killing continues and the destruction continues, then I think we will see some action. But uh, Nasrallah has said not yet, and I think that's also Mr. Erdogan's position. Mr. Erdogan is looking at it, and he's much closer to Hamas in many ways. Remember, Hamas is at least partially the offspring of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle mm -hmm. East, he leads it in the United States and Canada. Uh, he talked to over a million people about what was happening in Gaza. That discussion was just not a rally for Gaza, Judge. That was mobilizing the public, its opinion, its feelings against Israel in support of a potential Turkish intervention. Correct. And he made another comment over the weekend, which I thought was very telling. He actually said, Turkish soldiers will eventually fight in Gaza. Hmm. Well, now, you know, what's, you know what side they're going to be on. <laughs> well, I think we know that, but, you know, just, just keep in mind, inside the Beltway, people are dismissing it. Oh, he's a blowhard. He's not serious. He wouldn't do that. He doesn't want to jeopardize his position in NATO. Well, NATO is about as meaningless as any document I can think of off the top of my head. To how, how, how respected, how compelling is the Turkish military? The Turkish military is excellent. It's well-trained. Now, some people will say, well, they think we're better trained. I hear that all the time, but I don't necessarily buy the argument. They're very well equipped. They have their own 
scientific industrial base that supports military production, aircraft, missiles. They have the largest drone fleet in the world, I'm told. These are unmanned aerial vehicles. They have a very substantial Navy. They have the same submarines built in Germany in the Dolphin class that the Israelis have. The bottom line is if the Turks enter this thing, it will not be piecemeal. It'll be full force. And it would be very difficult for us to prevent Israel from being destroyed. The real question is, after the meeting with the Iranian foreign minister, is if this intervention occurs, for whatever reason, what happens with Iran? The Iranians are obviously not interested in a direct confrontation with us. They never have been. But who knows what might precipitate it and trigger it? You know, I keep looking for the potential for something like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. You know, something happens that results in the commitment of forces, and it turns out in retrospect that the trigger was was either a false flag or unjustified. Uh, we now have Senators Graham and Blumenthal submitting uh, legislation that would confer authority on the president to effectively declare war on Iran and attack it. So these are very dangerous situations right now that we should be avoiding. Instead, we seem to be walking headfirst into the wall that stands in front of us. And the basis for those uh, resolutions offered by Senators Blumenthal and Graham are attacks by militia groups, allegedly with the support of Iran and American troops in Syria. Oh, American troops are in Syria? Let's see. Did the Congress declare war on Syria? Here we go again. President Trump, President Trump actually directed their removal. He was subsequently lied to and told, yes, we're moving them out. They were never moved. And you, you also have this presence in Iraq. The real question is, what are they doing there? Now, I had people yeah. tell me when I was in the building, well, they're there to help contain Iran. <laughs> well, if we're containing Iran, then I suppose all these Shiite militias that are out, number into the thousands that cooperated with us, incidentally, to destroy ISIS, uh, somehow or another, they don't matter. And then you have these thousand soldiers up in the northeast corner of Syria. Well, if the if the Iranians really wanted to destroy them, it would not be difficult to do so. Those are light forces. What if the Turks decide to enter the fray? Those soldiers are potentially in the way of the advancing Turkish army as it moves through Syria. Oh, well, that'll never happen. And then finally, we have to keep those forces there because they're supporting Israel. They're early warning for Israel. Well, my experience with the Israelis is anything that happens in Syria or Iraq, they know it before we do. So the notion that we're providing them with early warning of anything is nonsense. And remember, at the time, this is three years ago, two years ago, we the Israelis still had good relations with the Russians. And the Russians accommodated them when they said they saw a threat from Iran on the ground in Syria. And the Russians said, fine, go for it. We're not going to interfere with you. Well, I think those days are over. Uh, Senator Manchin, this is almost comical uh, because of uh, Secretary uh, Austin's inability to ask uh, to answer, uh, asked if the U.S. has enough uh, military equipment and ammunition ready for its own needs in light of everything it has given away to Ukraine and Israel. Watch this. Next of all, it brings me to the munitions. I know it's been asked about what we can produce. Is the United States running uh, a risk, maybe not having enough to defend ourselves if we're if we're pulled into any of these battles uh, because of what we're basically producing? Are we producing enough here? 
with the trusted allies and ourselves, producing enough ammunition to defend our own homeland and uh, help our allies too. Thanks, Senator. The first order of business for us is to make sure that we have the capability required to defend our nation and protect our interests. Uh, okay. And then above and beyond that, uh, we I mean, you think we're producing enough? <laughs> we're, we're ramping yes. up. I know we're trying to. Yes, we, we are ramping up. But, uh, you know, if it were, if we had to only um, resource ourselves, uh, yes. But, but uh, we're at a point in time where we're, okay. we're resourcing... Uh, uh, allies and partners like Ukraine and, and, uh, and, and Israel, just, and it's going to require more. I'm just asking the question because people are asking me, are we running ourselves critically low on our own volume of what we need in our own basically inventory, or are we basically overproducing, or can we produce enough, or are we supplying more than what we can produce to backfill? You can't answer it. We all know what the answer is. You told us that months ago from your own sources. Yeah, if we are suddenly engaged in either Europe or in the Middle East. Uh, we do not have the war stocks we need to sustain ourselves for more than two weeks to 30 days. We just don't. We no. need much more. Uh, he's talking about ramping up. The problem is, Judge, we have no surge capacity. Surging suddenly to produce vast quantities of ammunition and missiles and rockets. We should have that capacity, but we don't because we don't pay for it. You know, we have these uh, very slow, ponderous uh, assembly lines that consist of highly specialized technicians that put these things together. I'm talking about your missiles and rockets in particular. And uh, there were discussions back in the 90s and certainly over the last 20, 21, 22 years of the need to address this and build a true surge capacity. It never happened. So he doesn't want to deliver bad news. But the truth is, we're not ready for a major war in either Eastern Europe or in the Middle East. Colonel McGregor, thank you very much for your time, my dear friend. Uh, no matter what we talk about, your, your insight is so profoundly appreciated by me and by everybody watching. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Judge. See you again soon. Yep. Judge Napolitano, for judging freedom, before I go, thank you again for all the, all the subscriptions. We're up to 228,000. We'll hit that quarter of a million by Christmas at, at the rate you have been showing your uh, generosity. Please keep it up. What do we do at Judging Freedom? We look out for your liberty.